We've been studying the book of Romans, and we're actually in chapter 3. And we're studying the subject of righteousness by faith. What must I do to be saved? Not too many Christians today know the true biblical answer and what must I do to be saved. People listen to their hearts. People listen to their friends. People listen to the speakers. But what people really need to do is listen to the Word of God this morning. Amen? We need to be students of the Word to find out what it is that God wants to teach us, how we are truly saved from what the Bible says, how we are saved. So this morning, may we listen to the words that God would have us to hear this morning. Let us pray. Father, we do humbly ask for you to open our ears that we may hear, that we may listen to the words of what you want us to learn this morning. May we learn how it is to be saved is our humble prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. What have we all done? The Bible says, continue our study. It says, for how many? All, all have what? Sinned. And come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that all, everyone has sinned. In other words, there is no difference when it comes to sin and salvation to everyone on this planet. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter what condition of life you may be in. We need to be thankful that God is willing to save us as he's willing to save other people. Amen? We're all on the same level here this morning. Now the Bible says here in verse 23, all have sinned and come short of God's glory or his character. Now, some people say, Lord, forgive me for coming short. And some pe people believe that coming short or shortcomings are not real sins. But the definition of sin this morning is actually to miss the mark. So whether you miss the mark by a lot, or you miss the mark by little, it's still a sin this morning, amen? And it's a nice way to say, Lord, forgive me for coming short. We don't like to use the word sin. Lord, forgive me for being a sinner, for sinning. I've done wrong. It was my mistake. I'm the one to blame. But instead we say, Lord, please forgive me for my shortcomings. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> Doesn't that sound pleasant? Sounds way better than the wickedness of sin, right? How could we as church members sin? And so we say shortcomings, coming short. But God wants us to realize that we are sinners. And we finally realize that we're sinners and we've sinned, all have sinned. I mean, there isn't one person in, in this church that has not sinned. It's impossible. The Bible says all have sinned. But when we finally realize that we've sinned, how are we then justify? Look at Verse 24, the Bible says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, Being justified, how? Freely, this morning. 
When we realize that we are sinners, the Bible says this morning that we are justified freely by His grace this morning. You see, it was a study of the book of Romans during the dark ages that brought about the great reformation in Europe. Started off in Germany with Martin Luther in a great way, a great movement. And back then, the Roman church used to teach that you could get righteousness. We've been studying righteousness, remember? But you could get righteousness by purchasing it. You ever heard of indulgences and penances? You ever heard of that penance? They had indulgences where you could actually pay money to buy a paper that said you received an indulgence. Means in, in other words, you could indulge in sin. You could get your way out of purgatory. You could pay your way so you could get forgiveness for past sins. And also, thirdly, you could actually pay money so that you'd be forgiven for future sins. How's that one? <laughs> and the church actually deceived the people to believing that you could actually pay your way for salvation. And then penance came. Penance was a way that you would work hard in order to work to earn your salvation also. And Martin Luther, he believed that. So walking up what Pilate stairs, right, in Rome, he was walking on his knees. He believed if you walk on your knees so many times, you would be saved. He was walking up his knees. And when he finally reached to the top, the words from Scripture whispered in his ear. Do you remember what those words were? The just shall live by faith, not works, by faith. He got off his knees and went back to Germany and he went and proclaimed the message and he started teaching at the University of Wittenberg, righteousness by faith in the book of Romans. He started off in Psalms, but he started preaching on, on teaching on the book of Romans, righteousness by faith. And the world came out of the dark ages, and the church came, churches came out of the dark ages because of the teaching of righteousness by faith. Now, indulgences are not so common today, but Christians today have gone back to the dark ages and believe that some work must be done in order to purchase righteousness once again. There must be something I must do in order to be saved. I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to do something in order to purchase, to earn my way, to get that salvation. But the Bible says we are justified, what? Freely by the grace of God this morning, amen? It is free. It doesn't cost anything. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. The Bible says you are justified freely. It's free. There's nothing we need to pay. There's nothing we need to do to obtain righteousness. The Bible says it is free to all who will receive this morning. Amen? Amen. But not too many people realize it this morning. Some people say there's something we got to do. And one person even said, well, I know the thing we need to do. We need to pray. That's what we need to do. That's what works. But if, if prayer is a means of works, then we're no different than the Roman or the Hindu devotee who has to pray a certain amount of prayers in order to be saved, right? 
There's no difference. There's a difference between saying a prayer and true prayer, according to the Bible. Now, if someone was to come up to you, and this is an illustration, and, and ask you for food because they were starving, and you decided to give them food because they were worthy, so you, you gave them food, and later on they went up to that person that you gave food to, and they asked them, what happened? He said, well, this person, which was you, he gave me some dinner, but he made me work for it. <laughs> and then they asked him, well, how did he make you work for it? Well, he made me ask for it, he said. But beloved, asking is not work this morning. Amen? In the same way with God, when we pray and God gives us his blessings, we cannot say he gave to us because we work by saying our prayers, beloved, this morning. Amen? We cannot say that this morning. Prayer is not a work. Saying a prayer and true prayer is two totally different things. True prayer is just the thankful acceptance of God's free gifts this morning. Amen? That's all it is. People may pray and have their rosaries and their beads or whatever and pray, pray, pray as a means. And some people maybe use it as a way that if I don't make enough prayers today, I'm going to um, make enough tomorrow. Or maybe I do a lot of prayers today so tomorrow I can ease off on my prayer. But it's just a form of works, beloved, this morning. For we are justified freely by God's grace. If you understand this, let me hear you say amen. Okay. Romans chapter 23, verse 24. Let's continue on our study of Romans chapter 3. The Bible says, being justified freely. How are we justified freely is the question. By his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that word redemption, what does that mean? When you redeem something, what does that mean? We buy it back, redeem something, we buy it back. So, we are redeemed. So in other words, our eternal life this morning, it couldn't be given for nothing. It had to be purchased. It had to be bought back. But we had nothing to buy it back with. So Christ himself bought it back, and then he gave it to us freely. Amen? See, eternal life is precious, it's very costly, but the only one that could buy it, it's so expensive, was Jesus Christ himself. And he bought it back, and he gave it to you and me here this morning. What were we deemed or bought back with? Look at on, the, on your papers here that were handed out. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Notice the Bible says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed or bought back with corruptible things or things of this world, as silver and gold or money or, you know, anything, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen? Amen. Now, what is the blood? Look at the next verse in Leviticus 17.11 in this paper. For the life of the flesh is in 
the blood. So in the blood is the what? Flesh. So the Bible says we were bought, we were bought back with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's saying we were bought back with the precious what? Life of Jesus Christ. Where? On the cross of Calvary. You see, beloved, justification, salvation is very expensive this morning. Amen? There's no such thing as a cheap grace this morning. Salvation is very, very expensive. So expensive that not one of us here this morning can purchase or earn it here this morning. No matter what works you may do, no matter how much money you may give, it doesn't matter. None of us has the power or the ability to buy this salvation this morning. There's only one human that could and did it, and his name is Jesus Christ's money. Amen? He bought this expensive gift, and he paid it with his very life. He gave up his life. He died on the cross of Calvary for you and me. And then when he gave his life and bought it back, then he comes back and said, you don't have to give me a penny for this, but then give it to you freely this morning. Amen? And he gives it to you, and he gives it to me this morning freely. And religion and churches and doctrines and dogmas and beliefs have perverted the gospel to believe that yes, I may have faith, but there's something that I must do to earn my salvation. Isn't that true, beloved, this morning? Salvation is free this morning according to the word of God. Now what happens when we try to do the works of the law? Look at Galatians 2 verse 21, the next one in your paper. Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God, Paul says. For, for Paul said, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If we can work our way to heaven or earn our way, then Christ's death on the cross is completely worthless. It would have been better, beloved, that we had said from the beginning, said, I will earn my way to heaven, earn my own salvation, and save Christ the trouble of dying on the cross for us. Amen? What's the point of Christ dying on the cross if you're going to earn your way to salvation this morning, beloved? You frustrate the grace of God when you think you can work your way or do your way and make it to heaven without Christ. What you're saying is, Christ, I not only frustrate, the, on the, frustrate God, but you're saying, God... Christ, you didn't even have to die for me because I can buy back salvation with my own strength, my own works. It's a free gift. And what a blessed gift it is to us this morning. Amen? Righteousness. Look at verse 25. What did God the Father set for Jesus Christ to do? The Bible says, whom God... Now, this is a challenging text. Whom God has set forth, talking about Jesus, God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And we're going to break down these texts. But let's look at that first word. God set forth Jesus Christ to be a propitiation. That word propitiation means Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So God said for Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice this morning. That word remission means passing over. Now sacrifice, let's look at that word. People think of sacrifice 
as a wrath of a God that needs to be appeased, to be soothed. But beloved, it is foolish this morning to think that God is angry with us and that he will not forgive us this morning. Is that not true? And that he needs to be sued. It is more foolish to believe that God then offers himself to himself by which he is satisfied for what we've done. Beloved, it is we who require the sacrifice and not God. And it is God, actually, who provides the sacrifice and not us. All heathen religions, we prov- they provide the sacrifice to the gods, but God is the one that provided the sacrifice in the first place. Amen? Contrary to all heathen religions. Now, what did Christ do for us on the cross? Look at your papers again. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. Notice what it says here. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now had he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Paul is saying here, at one time in your life, wherever it may be, you were in your mind because of your wicked works, at odds with God and enemies of God because you saw God to be a certain way. We studied this before, remember? We saw God to be a cruel God, a vengeful God. But now you've been reconciled or your mind's been changed by the body of his flesh through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, revealing that God is not a vengeful God, but God is a merciful and loving God to us this morning. Amen? You've been changed. One time you saw God as a vengeful God and that you had to atone for your sins and you had to do these things. But now through the death and the, on the cross of Calvary revealed that God is a loving, a merciful, a kind-hearted God. And now you realize that you actually love this God. Amen? And you change your mind of who God was. And that's what Paul is saying here. The cross reconciles us back to God. Amen? But the heathen idea out there is that people must provide sacrifices to satisfy their God. Is that not true? Now you go to, you go to the Kilauea Crater, right? Don't you see that? They call them Ho'okupus. Where you see like the tea leaf, you see the stones wrapping tea leaf. Or you see um, vegetable, I mean fruits or vegetables offered to Madame Pele, the goddess Pele, right? One of those are is actually gifts. Hokupo is a gift to the gods to appease the wrath of the gods or Pele for how we've gone astray from where we should be at and how the land has been taken away and everything. You hear that a lot, right? We need to appease the gods and Pele so that her judgments won't come down upon us. Is that not true? And what happens is when they feel that God is angry, they give a sacrifice. And when they believe that the God is very angry, they require a greater sacrifice called human sacrifices. Human sacrifices. And Christian persecution, in which people and Christians who have been persecuted by other Christians 
is just an extension of this heathen worship this morning of sacrifices. You see, religious leaders believe that salvation is by works, and if salvation is by works, then we must atone for our sins by offering gifts of works to our God. And what they've done is, in the past, they offered up this group of people who went against the teachings of the church. They offered up these people as rebellious people, as, and they thought in their mind, as a sacrifice to God in heaven to appease the wrath and anger of the God. Are you following me? Righteousness by works leads to a, a thinking that you must appease God of his anger. He's a vengeful God. And therefore, it will always lead to human sacrifices. And persecution in the, last, in, the, in the dark ages was always based upon this principle. Righteousness by works led the people to kill the true Christians. Fast forward to the last days. All that's going to happen in the last days is a repeat of righteousness by works. The churches are leaning toward righteousness by works. And if it's by works, then I have to earn it, and I have to atone for my sins, and I have to please and satisfy this vengeful God. And then all of a sudden, the judgments of God are falling upon this earth in the future. There must be a group of people, a sect of people, who are not willing to obey God because they're worshiping on Saturday, the wrong day. Therefore, God in heaven needs to be appeased. He needs to be soothed of his anger because the judgments, the earthquakes are falling, the, um, the tsunamis are coming. They need to be, God in heaven needs to be appeased. And therefore, we must sacrifice these humans who are disobeying God's law. Are you follow me this morning, beloved? Our concept of God affects how we treat other people. They were persecuted because they believed that God's remnant is responsible for the judgments of God. And they must soothe the vengeful God. But before we point the finger, what about us this morning? Do we live a righteousness by works in our life? Do we feel that we have to sometimes set other people straight to follow the Bible, right? So God can bless us and our church once again. Amen? Do we feel that we have to use force to make sure people are doing right so God won't send his curses and his judgment upon us and his church? Do we feel that we must atone for our sins and atone for the sins of people in the church, that things that are done must be done my way or the highway so that God can truly bless his people once again. All this thinking is just the same thinking of righteousness by doing the works of the law, that we must atone for our sins and please an angry God. Now, continue on our study, we learned what sacrifice was. Let's go back to Romans 3, verse 25. And it says here, God has set forth Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice through faith in his blood, so those who have faith, and we learn blood is life, so those who have faith in Christ's life on the cross. And then it says, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are, when? Passed through the forbearance or the patience of God. So God speaks his righteousness for the remission or the passing over of sins that are, specifically in the verses, the sins that are when? 
in the past, the Bible says here. You see, when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, God will not see your sins anymore, but the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Not only that, when you accept Jesus Christ into your, into your life, God sees Jesus now in you and not you anymore. So that now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, he treats you as if you were Jesus himself. Amen? And say that again. When God sees Jesus, when you accept Jesus in your life, God looks down at you and he sees Jesus in you. He now looks at you as if you were Jesus himself this morning. Amen? And some of us have a hard time to wrap our mind around that. But God sees the robe of righteousness. He sees you and he treats you as if you're Jesus Christ when you accept Jesus in your life. Righteousness by faith. Not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness given to you and me by faith this morning. Amen? Amen. Now, God, Christ declares his righteousness for the past. What else did he declare his righteousness? Romans 3, verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him which believeth in Jesus Christ this morning. God declares his righteousness for this time. In other words, we not only need righteousness to justify us in the past, beloved, we also need Christ's righteousness to justify us in this present time this morning. Amen? God not only uses his righteousness to justify us, to forgive us of our sins in the past, but his very righteousness gives us the power to have victory over sin and temptation in our present life today, this morning. Amen? You see, when righteousness is in the heart, sin is remitted or sent away, for righteousness and sin cannot be in the same place at the same time. They cannot exist together. The Bible says that to declare his righteousness. Now, to declare means to speak. So God speaks his righteousness to you and me. Now look at your papers right here, Psalm 33, verse 9. Talking about creation. It says, he spoke and it was. How long did after God spoke, let there be trees, was there through trees? One day? 30 seconds? Half a second maybe? <laughs> Immediately, right? The word spoke and it was, right? Okay. Going back to there, it says, God speaks his righteousness. Did God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. God speaks his righteousness to you and me this morning. In other words, when God speaks righteousness to us, men and women become righteous at that moment. Amen? That very moment. As soon as God says we are righteous, we become righteous. His word accomplishes what it says it would do this morning. Amen? And it would make us righteous if we would only believe that his word would accomplish what it says it would do. Now, who only will be justified and saved? Look at verse 26. It says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. 
who only are justified? Those who what? Believe in Jesus. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because doesn't the Bible also say that the devils believe, but they're not justified. They're not made righteous. They're not saved. To believe in Jesus means to believe in Jesus and what he has said in his word. Amen? So let's take a look at his word and how we are justified. Turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to go back to our scripture reading this morning. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Who did Jesus tell this story to? Look, this is the story about the two men that went to the temple. The Bible says, this is Jesus, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were, what? Righteous and despised others. In other words, God, Jesus spoke this parable to those who trusted in their own righteousness. They were self-righteous. They believed that their righteous works were sufficient for salvation to get them to heaven. That's what they believe. The Bible also says that these people who are self-righteous also despised others. You see, beloved, self-righteousness always leads to despising others. How is that so? Self-righteous people feel that they have within themselves all the righteousness that they need. But we know in the Bible that only God in heaven has the righteousness that we need this morning. Amen? So these people who think they have all the righteousness that they need within themselves believe that they are just like God himself. And therefore, when they think themselves as God, they look down upon everyone else because they're not able to come up to my righteousness that I have. Thus, they despise themselves to self-deceive themselves that they are better than themselves. We do it all the time, right? We criticize, we put down other people. Why? So that'll make us look better. Form of self-righteousness, right? The Bible says we're not to put down and criticize and talk down upon other people. But it's a spirit of self-righteousness that leads us to do this. Now, who went to church to pray that day? Look at Luke 18, verse 10. Jesus went, goes on and tells the story. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a publican, a tax collector, we know known as a banker today, a sinner, as no one likes. So you had a religious leader, and you had a sinner, and no one likes. What happened next in verse 11? What did a Pharisee Say, the Pharisee, the religious leader, stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men are, these extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican, this sinner. Now I want you to notice that this self-deceived Christian was then comparing himself and judging others to prove himself that he was actually better and deserving of salvation. Now how did a Pharisee compare his works to other? Verse 12, he said, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, I want you to notice 
that he relied upon his external or his outside works to show that he was saved. But beloved, this morning, outside works is not always a safe index of true spirituality. We can appear righteous on the outside, Jesus said, but be wicked on the inside. Is that not true? And so he tried to point to his outward works. But I want you to notice, what did a sinner do? Look at verse 13. And the publican, the sinner, standing afar off in the back of the church, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The sinner realized that he was a sinner, and this realization made him humble and dependent upon God. What are the, some of the worst sins that are out there? People say that are out there. Homosexuality, murder, rape, yeah? Some of the worst, worst sins out there in society, right? And they are evil, they're wicked, they're sinful. I don't think we were to disagree with that. But I want you to read this quote with me. Steps of Christ, page 30, on this paper. God does not regard all sins as of equal magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation. Different type of sins, different levels, some are worse than others, as well as that in of man. And look at the next bold print. It says, the drunkard, the outside sins, the drunkard is despised and is told that his sin were excluded from heaven. While... Pride, can you see pride all the time? Not all the time, something is in the heart, they may be thinking pride in the minds, right? But you can't really see it. So it's inside. Selfishness, it shows out in the outward life, but sometimes people are selfish in the heart and they're not saying it, right? This kind of lets you go. Pride on the inside, selfishness, covetousness, it can be hidden sins. Too often go unrebuked. But these are sins that are especially offensive to God. Worse than the drunkard, the homosexual, the murderer, the rapist. And then it says here, bold print, he who falls into some of the grossest sins, these grossest sins by what we think of, may feel a sense of his shame, but listen to this, and poverty, and his need of the grace of Christ, but pride feels no need. And so it closes the heart against Christ. It does make sense. It makes sense, beloved. When I was prideful and living my life, I never even thought about God. Why would I need God when I had everything and all? I, I lived my own life. I had all the righteousness I needed. I had all the fun I needed. I didn't need God in my life. See, the prideful person totally rejects dependence upon God, resents it. But what we need to realize this morning, what Jesus is saying to us, and what he's saying to us is this, you are a sinner. You have to change. And you need me this morning. Amen? We all need Jesus Christ this morning. Who ended up being justified? Look at verse 14. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, this humble man, went down to his house justified. Justified means made righteous or saved. Rather than the other, 
not the, not the church member, for everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. I want you to notice, beloved, the sinner's prayer and not the church member's prayer was the one that was answered in this story. Amen? The sinner and not the church member was justified, made righteous, and was saved. It wasn't the one coming to church that was saved in this story. It was the one that was the sinner who was repentant that was saved. Why? Because the sinner put no trust in his own works while the church member assumed righteousness. In other words, the gay rights homosexual who was repentant was saved while a church-going deacon was lost. The abortion-performing physician who was repentant was saved while the prideful elder was lost. The fornicating adulterer who was repentant was saved while the self-righteous church-going member was lost. According to this story of Jesus, is when we're truly humble before God that he is nearest to us. There's a quote I want to share you, the last one here. This quote, I remember at Weimar College, was put up upon the wall inside our dorm um, lobby. I'll never forget, I used to look at it and, and just weep thinking about the word that said, nothing is apparently more helpless. And I felt helpless at that time. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly upon the merits of the Savior. Amen? There's nothing more invincible than the person who feels the nothingness, who feels the helplessness, who feels the dependence upon Jesus, but yet is more powerful and dependent because of God's power. For when we are weak, then we are strong. When we are broken, then we are healed. When we are humbled, then we are exalted in the sight of God this morning. This morning we need to stop depending upon what we can do and start depending upon what God can do in my life and in your life this morning. Amen? If we would only be humble, if we're prideful and depending upon what you can do, there would be no power in your life. There'd be no power in the church. But when you believe that there's a God who is all-powerful, that he can take the little you that's sitting here this morning, the little me, and he can mold you and make you and take all of heaven's power and put it within your body to be used as a minister for him. God, there's no limits to the power that God can use in the Holocaust district, beloved. Amen? God wants to use you. He wants to call you to ministry. But beloved, you cannot do it with your own pride. You must sense your nothingness this morning. You must sense your helplessness. And then all of heaven will come to your aid and give you all the power in heaven to do his work this morning. Do you believe that with me? I believe that with all my heart this morning. We all need to throw our hands up in the air and allow Jesus to take control of our lives. Many of us have been driving our own lives and taking the wheel of our life. And many of us feel that we can take control, but we make a mess of it. What God wants to do is He wants us to give up the wheel and let Him take over, take over the driving. This morning, beloved, Clayton's going to sing a song.
That's entitled Jesus Take the Wheel. It's actually a song of a story of this woman who is driving the car and a baby's in the back seat. Hit a black ice, high speed, and spinning around. And while she's there and scared to death, she throws her hands in the air and she cries out to her God, Jesus, take the wheel. God saves her life and she's sitting there. She realized she's been gone away from God and she needed to pray for the first time in a long time. She bowed her hair and said, Lord, I've gone the wrong way. Take the wheel of my life. And that's what God wants us to do this morning. This morning, why don't you let Jesus take the wheel of your life this morning? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.